Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. If you want to follow along in the Bibles around you, it's on page 598. I'll be reading uh, Psalm 103 from verses 1 to 13. Give your attention to the word of God. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I mentioned earlier that we have uh, Dan Hamill here today. just want to give him a quick introduction. He's the executive director internationally of our North American Baptist Conference, which we are a part of. So he is actually my boss's boss's boss. So you have to treat him well. I also want to mention that um, the Hamill family has been a quiet part of Oak Hills for about seven years. So we are very, very grateful to have them be part of our church family. And please warm, warmly welcome Dan Hamill. Good morning, church. It's uh, really thrilling to be in front of you this morning and to open God's word together. We're in a, a summer series entitled uh, Soul Stirring Stories. It was Nigerian-born poet and novelist Ben Okri who once said, and I love this quote, Stories can conquer fear, you know. They can make the heart bigger. So stories have this way of, of enlarging our imagination of letting us see a bigger vision, and especially biblical stories, inspired by the Holy Spirit, given by God. They have the ability for us to see the world in a way that, in fact, God sees the world. So what a a thrilling thing to do is think about those stories that stir our souls, that bubble up something new, that force us to ponder, to make us uh, prone to think deeper about the things of God. Now, in English... My high school English teacher would have told me every story has at least one major theme, a principle, a tone, a purpose, an underlying gist that propels that story forward. And this morning, we're simply going to rehearse, remember uh, three, four stories of Jesus around the themes of lost and found. Uh, So to tee you up this morning just a bit on this theme, I want you to think about a time when you were geographically, locationally lost. So take a moment and just, just think about it. Think about a time when you found yourself misplaced or disoriented, a time when your directions got conflicted or confused, 
and, and take out your bulletin, your program that you got, and just, just write a couple words. Maybe write the place that you thought you were or the place where you found yourself. Or maybe write a couple words that come to your mind about that experience. Or maybe if you're really good, just start to draw a picture of what that experience was like to be lost. So do that, just to sort of enter in what it feels like to be lost. As you're doing that, my own narrative of being physically lost occurred actually quite recently. At the beginning of June, my wife and I traveled to Paris, France. Now, having lived a good deal of our lives in the Chicago area, Rhonda and I are both really, really comfortable with public transportation, like subways and buses and trains. It's sort of second nature to us to hop on one and get from point A to point B. So as we came into the airport, Charles Chagall, we had decided that we weren't going to take a taxi or an Uber or a Lyft downtown. We were going to take public transportation. So we had agreed to, to catch the subway, and that would take us downtown. And I had looked carefully at the map. I had studied the map and looked at where we needed to go. And in fact, we, we simply needed to catch it at the train station and make one major transfer. There was one major transfer halfway through where we had to, to switch trains to go from a train to another train to our downtown location, and we would be set. So we were good. So we, we would luggage and tow, we got off at the airport, found that train, took the 25 minutes on that first train, and then got off on the station and realized it was a subway station. We were now underground, and the visual cues that generally helped me see where I'm at were now gone. And, and there was three other distinct problems with my plan. First, I don't speak French. Second, I don't understand French. Third, I don't read French. And if you're getting my dilemma, say we oui, we. Oui. Yeah, I don't understand you anyway. So we find ourselves at this transfer station, underground, in this subway, looking for a particular title on the trains that came by. And we watch as every train came by that particular title, that particular name of that last station. And we watched and we watched and we watched for 45 minutes. We watched trains coming by. And at that point, something intuitive happened. I knew there was something wrong. We were confused. We were anxious. We were in a dilemma. We were lost. Suddenly, though, my wife, who has this inner GPS like none other that I know, she, she grabbed my arm and, and she, she pointed and she said, I think we are on the wrong side of the tracks. We are on the wrong side of the station. See, all the trains going this way are the wrong ones. All the trains going that way are the right ones. And it took us a good five, seven minutes to figure out how to get to the other side of the tracks, but we were no longer lost. Now, I'm convinced that 10% of the population actually believes that being lost is simply another opportunity for adventure. And, and raise your hand if you're that person. If you, if you, yeah, see, you can talk to those people afterwards. They're scary, scary people. <laughs> because the rest of us, 
the majority of us feel like that the experience of being lost has a sense of confusion, a sense of fear and apprehension, a sense of disorientation. We, We breathe more quickly. We sweat more visibly. Our hearts beat more rapidly when we're lost. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells four stories of being lost. And this morning, I I simply want to retell these four stories for us. And and I'm going to do it without actually reading the entire text. And and I want you to know I'm going to use what I call a bit of evangelical imagination. So so if you're concerned about whether, uh, you know, the executive director of a conference of churches actually gets the Bible right, read it yourself this afternoon to make sure. But I want to actually tell you these stories as I sort of hear them coming with a little imagination out of the words of Scripture. But but before I tell the story, though, I want you to get the context of the story, because the context is really important. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, this is what it says as as Jesus begins to launch in to four different stories. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law Muttered. I, I love that word. They, they muttered. This man welcomes sinners. And in my mind, I hear them elongating the S in that word. They, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, is hanging out with sinners. He's, he's eating with them. The down and out, the unappreciated, he is eating with those who violate the rules and candidly those who violate others. These are not nice people that he's with. And so he's sitting with the sinners around him. And then around them is another group that forms. And these are the religious leaders. They are the best of the best, the pure and the pristine the upper crust, the educated, the socially connected. And they stand outside of Jesus' group and they mutter, they grumble. In fact, the word in the original language for mutter is the word that's actually written because it has the sound of a bee's nest that has been kicked. That, That buzzing of bees when they're angry. And so they stand around Jesus and they stand around this crowd of people that he's drawn and they begin to buzz. The the stingers are out. They're muttering, how can this Jesus eat with sinners? In that context, Jesus tells four stories. And those stories go somewhat like this. The first story, a man has, a shepherd has 100 sheep. By the nature of his job as a shepherd, his job is to take care of those sheep. So every day, at the end of his shift, he counts his 100 sheep. 98, 99, 100. He takes a clipboard. He signs off on the clipboard saying, all are accounted and present. He gives his clipboard to the night crew. He goes home and has a wonderful dinner with his wife and family because he's done a good job. Every day. 98, 99, 100, sign off, give it to the night crew, go home, enjoy dinner, because he's done a good job. One day, he goes to count the sheep at the end of his shift. 97, 
98, 99, 99, 99. The shepherd has a problem. Now, friends, I'm not much of a sheep guy. Yeah, honestly, for me, 99 out of 100, close enough. In fact, you don't know me well, but in high school, if I would have brought home a, a math paper with 99 out of 100 on the top of it and given that math tape paper to my mother, after having to pick her up from the floor, she would have done a happy dance because 99 out of 100 is pretty, pretty good. Unless you're a shepherd. So Jesus says the shepherd takes the 99 sheep, he puts them in a pan of corral. Perhaps he has the night shift take care of them. And he goes out into the wilderness. The place where there's rocks and wolves. The place where there's sand and dryness. The place where there's caves and hills. And he goes out into this wilderness and he searches for this lost sheep. In my mind, I see him doing it into the night. Long into the night, he is searching and searching for this one lost sheep. And as, as the dawn breaks, he hears the bleating, not the bleeding, the bleating of the sheep. And he goes to that sheep and he picks it up and Jesus says that he puts it on his shoulders. Now, you have to realize this is not a little lamb that the scripture is talking about. This, this is not a, a, a fuzzy toy lamb that you, that you give your, your kids or your grandkids at Easter. This is a false sheep, and he picks it up, and he puts it on his shoulder, and he walks the thing through the wilderness, back through the grounds, to the corral. And he puts the sheep with the rest of the 99. And then he does think something candidly that I think is fairly odd. Something unusual. Maybe even a little bizarre. He, he throws a party. He throws a celebration. He invites all of his friends and his relatives and his neighbors and his coworkers, and he brings them together because he's going to have an I found my missing sheep party. Now, I don't know about you, but I've actually never been invited to an I found my missing sheep party. Never in all my life. I honestly... Uh, I don't know what you do when you're invited to an I found my missing sheep party. Does Hallmark, in fact, have a line of cards for this type of party? They probably do. If they did, it would be something like this. On the outside, it would say, I'm so glad you found your lamb. Open up. Hope you're happy as a clam. I don't know. I don't know. I have never been invited to a party. I don't know what you wear. I don't know what kind of gifts you bring. In fact, I don't even know what kind of food you serve at an I found my missing sheep party. I know what kind of food you don't serve at I found my missing sheep party. But get this. Something was lost. Something was found. And there was need for celebration. That was story number one. Story number two goes something like this. A woman had ten coins, and she wore those ten coins around her neck. Now, Bible scholars actually don't know what what particularly was happening here, the exact purpose. There's a couple of different ideas. One is that this woman, um, that these coins were somewhat of a dowry. 
that the woman got when she was married and that she would wear them. And if something happened to her husband or her family, this was her life savings. That would the resource to support herself in case everything went wrong. Others say that this was more like a wedding ring, that these 10 coins would have been given at the time of her marriage and she would have worn them as a symbol of her husband's love and affection. That's actually the one I like best. So this woman has 10 coins that she's wearing around her neck and one of them slips away. It just slips. Now, in those days, first century Palestine, the homes would have been made out of concrete or mud-baked brick. A few windows, not a lot. If you had some wealth, you would have mosaic floors. If you didn't have wealth, if you were one of the common people, your floors were dirt. And so I see this woman dropping a coin somewhere in the dirt. And Jesus says she takes her lamp. And then in my mind, mind, on my eyes, mind, she, she takes a broom. And she begins to sweep corner to corner, room to room. And I see the dust start to drift up. Her, her nostrils getting filled. There, there's this, this sort of mist in the air. But she continues to search corner to corner, room to room. And finally, she sees a glint, a, a glimmer. And she reaches down and, and picks up a handful of dirt. And she begins to brush it away. And there it is, the one lost coin. And then the woman does Something odd, something unusual, something a bit bizarre. She throws a party and she invites her friends and her relatives and her loved ones. And they come to an I found my missing coin party. And once again, I've never been. I don't know what you bring. I don't you know what you wear. The best thing I could think about serving was silver dollar pancakes. Maybe that goes with the theme. But we have to understand that something was lost and something was found and there was need for rejoicing. That was story number two. Story three that Jesus tells goes something like this. A father had two sons. The younger of the sons comes to the father and says, Father, I want my inheritance, but I don't want to wait till you die. I want my inheritance now. And now that I have it, I'm going to leave you. Now, parenthetically, I want to stop and tell you that Jesus is actually ratcheting up the intensity of these three stories. In the first story, we go from one sheep out of 100. So 1%, one out of 100. The second story, Jesus goes one out of 10. So 10%. In the third story, we're at one out of two, one out of two sons. So Jesus numerically is sort of ratcheting up the intensity of the story. In the first story, the sheep is a commodity, something to be sold, bought, purchased. It's a commodity. In the second story, the the necklace, the coin is a part of a necklace that has sentimentality. But in this third story, this this is relationship. So Jesus is ratcheting up the intensity of these stories. And so the son comes to his father, says, give me my inheritance. The father does, and the son takes off. And Jesus says, he takes off to a distant land. 
And there in that distant land, with that inheritance that he has gained, he does things that honestly would have broken his father's heart. Jesus goes on to say that a famine comes. So this young man, having spent all of his money and squandered and wasted it, now a famine hits the land and he finds himself in survival mode. With no food, no shelter, no clothing, and he's all alone in this distant land. And so he he brokers himself out. He hires himself out to a pig farmer. And every day he finds him knee deep in pig slop, feeding pods to pigs. And friends, this is not a good place for a young Jewish boy to be. Jesus says in this wonderful phrase that as the boy stands in the middle of the pig slop, feeding these pigs, he comes to his senses. What a wonderful phrase. I don't know if this is a point of conversion a point where he's suddenly transformed. Or I don't know if it may just be pragmatics that he realizes that he's got to do something different. But Jesus says that the young boy, he comes to his senses. And he says to himself, not even my father's servants, not even my father's hired hands, not even those who work for my father have a a worse life than I do. They all have food. They all have clothing. They all have shelter. I need to go home. I need to seek my father. And as he does this, he begins to make that long journey from a distant land. And as he does, he rehearses a speech. He rehearses the speech that he's going to give to his dad. And the speech goes something like this as he's walking along. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against earth. I'm not worthy to be your son. Make me your servant. Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against earth. I'm not worthy to be your son. Make me your servant. Jesus said that when the son was still a long way off, still in the distance. In my mind's eye, I see the father on this ranch, on a porch, looking into the distance, and he sees the silhouette of someone coming as the silhouette gets closer, he realizes his son. And he runs to his son. He runs at full speed. And as he gets close to his son, the son goes into the speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. I'm not worthy to be your son. And the father cuts him off. And the father takes the robe, new clothing, and puts it on him. And he takes a ring, the family ring, the, the ring that's a symbol of power and authority, and he puts it on his hand. And then he does something that maybe is not so odd, maybe not so unusual, maybe not so bizarre. He throws a party. He invites his friends and his relatives and his neighbors. And he says, come, I'm going to kill the fatted calf, the son of mine who was lost has now been found. Come and celebrate because something was lost and something was found. And we need to rejoice and celebrate. Why does Jesus tell these three stories? Why does Luke take the time and energy to record these stories for us? Well, 
actually don't think you need to be a well-versed or learned Christian theologian to get this one. Jesus simply wants us to remind us at the very deepest levels of the kingdom of God. Now get this, that God loves and adores lost people. God treasures lost people. He doesn't turn away or ignore those who carry the baggage of sin, the wounds of harmful decisions, the scar of unholy experiences, or even the odor of offense. God receives, he welcomes, he reorients, he transforms, he redeems, he rescues. And this is really beautiful. He celebrates and rejoices when lost people simply turn, simply turn back to him. They don't have to clean themselves up. They don't have to remake themselves. They don't have to renew themselves. They simply need to turn. God loves, adores, treasures lost people. This is actually not a a new message for Oak Hills. This is a wonderful message that we believe and we hear over and over and that God is a good and great and faithful God. And God adores and loves and treasures us who are sinners and those outside of us who are sinners. Uh, the, rare, the writer Jerry Bridges put it this way. God's unfailing love for us is an objective fact affirmed over and over in the scriptures. It is true whether we believe it or not. Our doubts do not destroy God's love, nor does our faith create it. It originates in the very nature of God, who is love. And it flows to us through the union with his beloved son. God treasures lost people. And he has proved this by sending himself into this world with this overwhelming desire to seek and save all of humanity, all who are lost. He comes to seek and save because he knows that we wander, that we slip, and even that we rebel against him. Now, in literature, if I remember my English teacher correctly, a story that has a a good ending, a story that has tension and conflict and then resolves itself is called a comedy. And a story that that doesn't resolve itself, that has tension and conflict, but doesn't resolve and makes us sort of live in this conflict is called a tragedy. So think of Shakespeare. Shakespeare writes tragedies and comedies. A comedy is not called a comedy because it's humorous. It's called a comedy because at the end it resolves itself. The way that I've heard this story told, the story of the prodigal son, most of my days in church has been as, as a comedy. As at the end of the returning son, that, that somehow everything is best. Everything resolves. The tension of going away, the tension of returning, the conflict that was there gets resolved. And we teach us as a comedy. But I want to let you know that this story is actually a tragedy. The story is actually a tragedy. And there's a tragedy because there's a second half to the story. I said there's four stories. There's actually probably three stories with a second chapter. 
So as the party is going, the, the father has welcomed the son back in the family. The fatted calf has been killed. The, the, the feast is going on. The barbecue is happening. The vegans are wondering what's going on. And, and there's lots of rejoicing going on. As this is happening, the older brother, the one who didn't get the inheritance, is outside. In fact, he's been working in the fields and hears the commotion and wonders what's going on. And Jesus says that we find the older brother, having been informed of his brother's return, having been informed of the celebration, the party, the rejoicing that's going on, that we find the brother hurt. He's stung. He's irritated. He's unhappy. And this younger or this older brother, he confronts his father with the unfairness of the situation. And in fact, if we think about it deeply, isn't this an unfair situation? Hasn't the young son basically stolen everything from his father, half the inheritance? Hasn't he squandered him on wine, women and song? Hasn't he ruined the family's reputation? Hasn't this young son, doesn't he deserve more punishment? This is the way that Jesus actually said the words. I want to read them to you so that you understand this correctly. So the older brother became angry and refused to go in. That's to the party. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You have never gave me even a a young goat. So I could celebrate with my friends. But when this young son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Boy, you can hear the unfairness. You can hear the bitterness. The father says, my son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. That the tragedy of this story is that the older brother thought himself closest to his father. By proximity, by affection, by obedience, he thought that in fact he was the closest one to his father. And at the end of the story, he finds himself furthest away from the father because he never understood his father's heart. So what is Jesus doing? As these sinners surround him, as surrounding them are these, these muttering, these buzzing religious leaders, Jesus is turning the story as a corrective surgical knife in the life of of those religious leaders, and perhaps in our lives. Those good, God-worshipping, faithful people thought there was no room in God's family for sinners. The most religious of the day thought they were closest to the heart of God, and in fact, they were furthest away. The tragedy of the story is that they missed out that God is on mission. And had given them the mission to seek and save those who were lost. I don't know about you, but in all of us probably, and very much in me, uh, there's a dark place. 
that reflects the cynicism of the older brother. Instead of celebrating those who begin the journey back to God, I, we, want to put on the cautionary brakes. We are uncomfortable with those who have the stains of sin dripping from them. And we desire at some level to to slow them down, to make them suffer a little bit more, perhaps to do a little bit more time served before they can re-enter the family, before they can come to the Father. Jesus tells these stories to stir our hearts, to stir our souls, and perhaps to shock us back into reality. The reality that in the spiritual kingdom of God, our God celebrates when lost people want to find him. It was Brandon Manning, Brandon, Brandon Manning who said this. This is a beautiful quote that we just need to let wash over us. This is what he said. We should be astonished at the goodness of God. Stunned that he should bother to call us by name. Our mouths wide open at his love, bewildered that at this very moment we are standing on holy ground. But I would turn the words ever so slightly today and say we should be astonished at the goodness of God, stunned that he should bother to call others by name. Our mouths wide open at his love, bewildered at this very moment that they are standing on holy ground. God calls each of us in our moments of lostness to return to a God who adores the repentant heart. Today, God calls any of us who find ourselves at distance to the Father simply to return. Not to clean up first, not to to get better first, not to fix ourselves first, but he simply calls us to return to a father who loves and adores us. But at the same time, church, God calls us as a church to reflect this same overloving, overwhelming love of God to the people around us, to those who are lost in our families, to those who are lost in our neighborhoods, to those who are lost in our communities, to those who are lost in our nation. He doesn't call us to fix them first, transform them first, to somehow make them better first. He simply calls us to love them first. Four stories. A lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son, and a lost older brother. Three celebrations One tragedy. One son remained lost. I find for my own soul this theme to be stirring, to be remarkable. God loves, adores, treasures, and celebrates lost people who turn to him. I think God loves, adores, treasures, and celebrates the church that loves and adores and treasures and celebrates lost people. Our God treasures lost people. What do we treasure? 
Let me pray. Father, we need to hear again and again and again how much you adore and love and treasure us. That while we were all lost in sin at one point, you you bought us back. You grabbed us. You redeemed us. You rescued us. So that once we were lost, but now we're found. Once we were blind, but now we see. Once we were dead, but now we're alive. And it was your overwhelming love that created that spiritual possibility for us. So help us just to hear that again. To live in that. To experience that. To to wash ourselves in that over and over again. That you love us. That you adore us. But Father, help us also be bitten in the heart to realize there are people around us in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our nation who are lost. They are walking in darkness. And they simply need a church. They need your people to love and adore and treasure them back to the Father. God, help us to be those people. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.